Welcome to Credo's The Biblical Theology Podcast, where biblical theology is placed in conversation with the great tradition for the benefit of theologians, preachers, and the church. Uh, today, my guest is uh, Dr. Mitchell Chase. Uh, he is the pastor at Cosmosdale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and serves as associate professor of biblical studies at Southern Seminary. He is a happy husband and the father of four and is um, uh, a writer and, and does a number of things, has um, just a lot to do with biblical theology, and that's why why he's here. But um, Dr. Chase, thank you for being on the podcast today. Hey, Sam, I'm so glad to be with you and to talk about a subject we love. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And and I especially, this is uh, uh, unique for me, and I'm thankful to have you on since you served as uh, one of my readers on my dissertation, and so really glad to to have you on in that sense. Very good, man. That was a good season, and I'm very happy for you that that's behind you. That's yeah, <laughs> I, as, as am I. I even more so than you. So uh, I believe that. <laughs> well, before we jump in, I do want um, to to just mention we're gonna the topic is gonna be bib- biblical theology and just a definition of it, and then um, kind of defining terms and those sorts of things. Um, but before we launch off into that, I just want to make note of uh, being able to read uh, a good portion of. Uh, you're short of glory that recently came out with Crossway and, and just really mm. thankful for that. Would you maybe say a word about that book? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing this up. This uh, is a new book from Crossway published in May of 2023. And short of glory is um, trying to summarize what Genesis three is all about in light of the whole scriptures. And that chapter is so pivotal because it is the chapter of the fall and uh, short of glory is a phrase taken from Romans 3, where Paul says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, so my goal in that book was to explore the uh, resonances and echoes, not only in the chapter of Genesis 3 in its context in uh, the later parts of, uh, of Genesis, but really across the whole Old and New Testaments, how does the fall impact the biblical storyline? That was the aim of the book, and uh, really glad to see that out in the open now. That's great. Well, let's uh, let's dive in here. And um, I have a, a biographical question for you. Um, OK, when do you remember having uh, what we could call your first biblical theological thoughts? OK, uh, what mm. was that a book? Was that what, when did the kind of uh, maybe as C.S. Lewis says it, the stab of joy, like the biblical theological uh, stuff that grabbed you? When was that? Well, I don't recall the phrasing being something that was part of my life growing up where I'm thinking, you know, about biblical theology or trying to put things together like that. And even in college, uh, when I was uh, doing my bachelor's degree, I recall reading plenty of helpful books that were about this part of theology or this part of the uh, Old Testament. But I still think my mind was not geared toward and toward and awakened to um, what I'm trying to do now as an interpreter, and that is to hold all of Scripture together and to understand its various parts in light of the whole. And um, it it would actually, for me, biographically come quite late. Um, I was in seminary. I I remember a particular class uh, taught by Jim Hamilton. It was the book of Isaiah. And I had Dr. Hamilton really advocating biblical theology for the whole semester by walking through the book of Isaiah. And I think that for me was as much an awakening uh, academically and um, and affectionately mm-hmm. as I as I remember toward this whole notion of seeing the Bible this way 
of holding the Testaments together and in trying to interpret it as Christians throughout the ages. Um, so I'd have to go back probably to about 2005. And, you know, I could be forgetting things that were earlier, but I do know that that, that semester, that class, and of course, Dr. Hamilton's continued influence on me um, was just so pivotal. Yeah, that's great. I uh, I think even in key in what you're saying is the two testaments idea that somehow um, I would imagine for most of us that that is the convergence. There's something that shifts in uh, away maybe from a singular book or even human author or something like that in in Old Testament New Testament into that this is all one uh, grand epic of sorts, right? Uh, That's I, right. I remember reading um, mine was um, uh, Graham Goldsworthy, and and just my first contact was. Um, uh, with him and had no idea, uh, similar to you, I, I would not have called it biblical theology because I didn't know that, but I just didn't realize that I did not conceptually conceive of the Bible as a whole, as a unity. Yeah. And and so he uh, rid me of, of some problems I didn't even know I had. Yeah, it's so helpful because when we when we do have that kind of awakening, you don't you can't unsee that. Like right. once you've experienced that, it's so paradigm shifting that for the rest of your life you have been you've been awakened to this uh, notion of interpretation that you find so helpful, so crucial. You want to teach it to people, you want to preach in light of it. Uh, so I I just resonate with that. It's it's uh, it's great to hear people's background with that. So thank you for sharing yours and asking of mine. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, why don't you give us a definition for biblical theology, just an operating definition that you would use and yeah. would be helpful to our crowd? So there are all kinds of definitions. If you ask people about biblical theology and how they've come to understand it, um, good definitions exist. So over the, over the years, here's one that I've, I've put together that has served me well. Um, biblical theology is something we're doing when we do this. We are attentively reading and understanding a biblical passage in light of the progressive revelation trajectory and canonical context of scripture. Now that's a long definition. I know you might, you didn't ask for a short one, <laughs> but I did. But the, but the definition for me is I'm trying to attentively read and understand a passage in light of something else. I'm not just trying to focus on what I'm looking at in a chapter or a passage with a bounded, you know, context, uh, certain verses, Here's my context. Instead, I'm saying revelation is unfolding. So there's progressive revelation from Genesis forward. God is revealing himself to his, his creatures. This has a redemptive historical trajectory. So as I'm following the progressive revelation of scripture, there is a redemptive plan that God is going to execute. And he is preserving it through these biblical authors, centuries and eras. So there's a progressive revelation of scripture the redemptive historical trajectory of it, and that that ends up accomplishing a Genesis to Revelation canonical context. So biblical theology is when I try to understand attentively a passage of Scripture in light of Scripture's progressive revelation, redemptive trajectory, and canonical context. And and, um, those parts of the definition matter to me personally because I've become more and more convinced over the years that when we read an Old Testament chapter, let's say Genesis 3, you know, I've got a book on short of, called Short of Glory, and Genesis 3, I spent a lot of time thinking about this chapter. But Genesis 3 is, is not something we understand by only looking at that chapter. We right. can actually understand more about this chapter 
by following the progressive revelation and trajectory of Scripture. And that's what biblical theology is interested in. And it's wanting to hold the Testaments together. So there's a whole host of presuppositions that we bring to the table when we're doing biblical theology. But I'm trying to attentively read a passage in light of where Scripture's going, in light of the whole context of the Bible. And it helps me take the part that I'm trying to learn about or study and to view it in light of the whole, because God has spoken um, from Genesis to Revelation with um, an increasing clarity in light of the gospel. Uh, so that's that's more of what I had in mind, and that's unpacking it just a little bit. I, I'm very helped by that. And uh, Let's go ahead then and get into a little bit of a history, a very short and, and rudimentary level uh, history. Um, where did this discipline begin? Uh, is it warranted in Scripture? Um, who are some of the key figures that you might... Um, reference and those sorts of things? I I know that when people think of a history of something, they might be looking for a date or a particular figure. You know, who's the guy that like started biblical theology? Um, my, my answer is my going to include some names or dates, but I also want to emphasize that I think what we're trying to do is recognize what the Bible and it's uh, what the biblical authors are already doing so that biblical theology is something that Paul is doing and James is doing, and Peter is doing. Um, in, in other words, how far back does the practice of biblical theology go? And I would say the biblical authors are doing it. <laughs> and so that's, right. that's that's quite early. I know I, I, I think that's uh, jumping right to uh, the inspired text themselves. But, but I know that your question also is important for the historical context of how church history has understood the scriptures, because you can find all sorts of different movements within church history about how the Bible has been interpreted. And um, the, the language about biblical theology um, it tends to be rooted with that phrase in the 1600s. Um, if it's earlier, I'm not aware of any earlier sources yet, but um, there's even someone promoted as like the father of biblical theology named Johann Gobbler. And um, there are figures like him. He uh, gave this very seminal address in uh, 1787, and it was on distinctions between biblical and dogmatic theology. Um, this particular um, address was viewed as um, the kind of thing historically that people look back to. Uh, you know, is he the father of biblical theology? And you know, some people would consider that. Uh, others might quibble with it. Um, other names, like in the uh, late 1800s and into the 1900s, you think about Gerhardus Voss, um, important names that um, are going to be crucial in historical recountings of the rise of biblical theology, different understandings and definitions of it. And uh, so that's that's a couple historical comments. But um, I, I still want to insist on the idea that what I mean by biblical theology I see happening in the biblical authors themselves and that the early church and the medieval interpreters are trying to understand the scripture as two testaments, which bear witness to the triune God's redemptive work in his son. And um, that throughout church history, people have been interested in that. And so you got you know pockets of movements and a sect here or there, certain rise and fall of historical figures, and even people like Johann Gobbler. So you got you know some nails to to hang your hat on if you will in the wall, but um, it's 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 a huge question that you've asked, and that's I, right. I feel like yeah. it's just like the tip of the iceberg, you know. That's right. So any 
any follow up there? Yeah, I when I um, when I teach it here on campus, I often will start with a word like dubious. Right. And I'll go this this if you want to talk <laughs> about discipline, then let's start with a dubious point. And, and I start with with a gobbler. And make a joke about his name. Um, and, and, and you know, is it Gabler or Gobbler? No, no one's alive to, to tell us. And, exactly. and so, so yeah, we start there and then I start moving backwards actually and, and talk about it much more like a spirit. Um, uh, that, that there's really biblical theology to me is an impulse. It's a spirit and you see it, um, mm. showing up in, in Augustine. You're showing up at points in the medieval era and I give them quotes from Irenaeus and these sorts of things. And then I take them to, Psalm 78 and go, this is this is biblical theology or or yep. Acts seven and say, Stephen, on the precipice of being martyred is doing biblical theology. And they are That's right. the reason they kill him is because of biblical theology. Like he, he his reading hmm. is different than theirs um, because he's converted. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right. And, and Voss, of course, is is, is very helpful. And um, I find his um, his definition to be. Uh, incredibly succinct and helpful, and then also missing things. And it's just like it, it's a great place to uh, to to be helped and and to to move forward. So that's very very helpful. Well, let's move into a little bit of uh, a Venn diagram type work, um, just to to further help the 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 reader, or rather here, excuse me. Um, where does biblical theology uh, begin and exegesis end? Or is that the wrong way of saying it? Like, are they one in the same? Mm. How do you distinguish them? Well, my initial thought there is that I need to do faithful exegesis in order to do biblical theology. So right. I see them as related in my own thinking, but some of it's just the way definitions can work, right? So um, if someone defines something a certain way, it might be then more equative in their in their understanding. But, um, you know, with exegesis, you're, you're trying to study and understand the text. And I think uh, faithful exegesis should involve the task of biblical theology. So that's probably the way I would put it, because it, it involves looking at the full scope of divine revelation. We're trying to exegete the Bible as not a book of mere men. It is a book inspired by the Holy Spirit that from Genesis to Revelation makes known the will of the triune God for his creatures, of how the world has been ordered, what has happened in the world, what he's done to remedy the problem of sin and death, and the hope of what is to come. And you need the whole scope of Scripture as uh, as the object of your study. And that means when I'm trying to exegete a text, uh, biblical theology is not some peripheral, you know, extraneous thing that might end up tripping me up in my exegesis. Instead, I want to I read the Bible and study the text as a Christian. And that means I've got Christian presuppositions about what kind of book this is and, and ways in which reading it will will be Christian ways of reading, or ways that you could approach the Bible that would actually be unchristian postures toward it. And uh, so I think exegesis um, and, and biblical theology are connected in that way. I want to exegete the text in a way that's faithful to do biblical theology. That's great. Okay, so that's exegesis and, and uh, biblical theology. Now let's think about biblical theology, continuing with the Venn diagram idea and and re-enter into the history conversation a little bit. There's another mm-hmm. thing that that maybe hearers will have heard of called just canonical uh, a, a canonical approach, and they may derive that from Brevard Childs or something like this. But are those the same things? Are they different? How do those overlap or not? 
Well, you know, in, in initially, if someone hears about a canonical approach, they might think, okay, well, this could be this could be a good idea. We want to read uh, the scripture in light of its progressive uh, revelation, which is now bounded for us in the biblical canon. And um, I know that sometimes defining the term of, you know, what does it mean to have a canonical approach? It might differ from person to person. I I don't have strong quibbles with a canonical approach uh, because what I mean by a canonical approach is if God has revealed his word from Genesis to Revelation, then I take the canonical sweep of scripture into account when I'm trying to understand a particular passage or theme. And uh, so I, I think that there is a, a strong relationship between biblical theology and a the canonical context of scripture. Um, do you feel differently or do you see it similarly? No, I, I, uh, um, I'm trying to think if it was you, I, someone I was recently uh, either reading or, or listening to uh, talking about uh, max, just being maximalist or minimalist. And I just find mm. I am I am um, inherently maximal. Uh, I'm going to go, yeah. I mean, these seem very similar to me. I don't <laughs> I don't want to disregard one of them. So there's almost the historical conversation of saying, hey. What did Childs or, or, or one of his children even, uh, exactly. you know, what did they mean by it? That That is appropriate to, to discuss. But in that sense of sort of a spirit or, or, or geist even of what are we trying to do, they're both helpful impulses to me. And I do understand that there's some differences, um, but right. I find them to be uh, impulsively very similar. Um, well, because with so. biblical theology, you're really concerned uh, with one of the subjects of uh, how does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Right. This is one of those crucial connection points. And I see biblical authors interpreting the Old Testament using quotations and application. We see allusions and echoes of the Old Testament in the New. And so biblical theology is very much occupied with that relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. By simply referring, though, to Old and New Testaments, I'm using canon terms. That's what I'm doing. I'm using canonical labels for what we understand to be the 39 books of the Old and the 27 books of the New. So I... In the end, Sam, I'm not sure how we would do biblical theology without a canonical approach to some degree. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100 percent. And and I, I think um, it's helpful to kind of consider it from the side of you're going to approach these things in literature um, that, that's going to be in this broader, broader conversation about biblical theology. And and uh, I, I find them to be, you know, friends more so than foes. And, and there is questions right. there of – Inerrancy and and those sorts of things and what this particular author where you know where did he teach what was his position those sorts of things but um in general I'm I'm I find myself to be a beggar and I want to understand the Bible and I find a lot of help from a lot of different you know authors that they call their approach one thing or another and, and biblical theology and cano- and a canonical approach or, or one guy that you and I have talked about a number of times, Sailhammer, preferred to tighten it and right. call his approach compositional, right? And, right? and he meant some nuances there, but I'm going, man, I like that too. That's very, I, I'm helped by his his way of understanding that. And um, so that's helpful. You know, I heard a hermeneutics uh, professor say one time that we should think of these various uh, disciplines and approaches sometimes uh, as an analogy of a toolbox with various tools in it. Right. And it's like, I can't always use only one. One particular tool, depending on what the task looks like, I might employ a myriad of different tools that are all serving good purposes as they're rightly used. And so I, I think that that's kind of an analogy that makes sense in my mind with our conversation. Great. 
Okay, continuing with the, the Venn diagram, we're going to introduce one, one more uh, uh, loop here. Okay, so what's called TIS or theological interpretation of Scripture, is that the same thing as biblical theology or a canonical approach or, or even exegesis? Or is there differences? Uh, and that's, a as you and I both know, and the crowd will likely know, that's a um, a shifting sand of sorts. Like what one person means by TIS even ten years ago oh, may be slightly so true, different uh, than than today. So let's uh, yeah. tackle that one last. Uh, but what do you think? <laughs> well, you're right about it feeling like a shifting sand subject. That is a difficult one to uh, nail down. I I don't see it as the same as biblical theology. So in my mind, there there are differences in a way that uh, I would even say there are differences between TIS and a canonical approach. Um, I think TIS is is very much concerned with theological concerns, questions about the text that um, are going to help or aid the reading of the text, but there is some theological and philosophical reasoning that doesn't necessarily have to look like an, an exegetical work that's been done. I would see uh, TIS as, uh, you know, depending on the proponent of it, as a movement that can be helpful when it's grounded in Christian presuppositions about the text. Um, and, and the reason I would even say it can be helpful, even though others can see TIS proponents maybe having some unhelpful work, um, TIS at least reminds us that when we're approaching the Bible, we're always doing so theologically. Like, I can't, there is no untheological interpretations of Scripture where I don't have some kind of assumption about the kind of book I'm studying, about the Lord uh, in some way, about who Christ is. I've got certain doctrinal presuppositions. And um, I know it was very prominent in some of the historical critical eras to really emphasize this objective, purist reading of the Scripture. Let's set aside all of our biases and but I think we know enough in hindsight to realize we can't actually do that. Right. And uh, we just, we're always going to read the Bible through lenses. And um, the, the good work of TIS is going to say, we're going to read the Bible theologically. So let us have as sound a theological approach and posture as we can. Um, and what, what comes to mind, I'm just going to borrow Grant Osborne's image of the hermeneutical spiral, because yeah. I think it can serve this here as well. I want my exegesis to shape my theology, but I also need sound theology to guide and guard my exegesis. And that's because it's not just me and the Bible. I have a history of millennia behind me and a cloud of witnesses and theologians throughout church history, councils and creeds. In other words, there have been a lot of people reading the Bible before you and I come along. And we would not be wise to ignore that that plethora of help and treasure. Um, and that means I can have um, theological tradition and and um, and confession to help my exegesis. I'm not trying to just invent the wheel all over again, you know. Right. That's good. Yeah. I I think even as you're speaking there, it, it, it does what TIS, I think, um, has, has really helped move the conversation forward is, is on the ontology of scripture, that this is not a mere historical document, though it of course is, and it is 100% accurate, but rather it's, it's uniquely a theological document. It, it is intended to reveal, um, the one true living God and his redemptive plan and, and these sorts of things That's right. culminating in Christ. But to ignore that and to read it as, um, 
even uh, apologetically, first and foremost, is is often not going to be the right headed way of doing it, mm. but rather to mm. to read it, um, script you know, scripture as uh, theological um, work, you know, that's trying to reveal God to us, and and I think it's been extraordinarily helpful in that sense, and and for that, I think we're all you know grateful that it's pushed that forward, but. Well, and for me as an interpreter, I've loved how uh, certain proponents of TIS have helped tap us into specific works and primary sources from church history that will that will genuinely help us preserve a continuity across the ages with how we are reading texts, how we are how we can see things implemented, and even if we don't agree with all the conclusions of those primary sources, it, it at least gives us historical perspective. It helps us see the way things in the history of interpretation have been read and how it's been used theologically. Um, that that's going to help us. Even if we don't agree with certain conclusions, it will help us think, and it will help us to either, you know, uh, challenge our own position and 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 uh, you know make adjustments accordingly, or it will help us better defend the position that we're convinced about. So, you know, I, I think that um, exploring uh, writers within TIS um, has merit to it, and uh, so I, I just want to be open to that and, and to continue learning. That's great. Well, you've written um, a good bit on typology and uh, the quadriga as well. I, I would love for you to maybe just mention in, in this Venn diagram idea uh, is the closing piece. Maybe um, do, does what is the quadriga? Does it serve uh, biblical theological ends or, or is it leading it or how does that work? Yeah, so uh, there are. Um, there are a number of controversial uh, layers to to this subject, um, and so we we obviously do not have the time to unpack this for long. But but if I if I could just briefly say that the quadriga is is a notion of seeing levels of significance and meaning within the biblical text that takes it seriously at a historical level, but also recognizes that there's further application and christological significance. To what God has revealed, He uh, has authored, uh, He has inspired the biblical authors from Genesis to Revelation to make known His redemptive plan, and that means um, an initial reader of an ancient text might not see everything that there is to see apart from the full scope of Scripture. So what the Quadriga is trying to do, I think, and you see this in the era of the Church Fathers and into the uh, medieval era, that that particular juncture, and figures like John Cassian and Augustine, and figures who are wanting to see multiple levels of significance to the text. So there's the, the literal sense, the literal sense, that's for the first of the fourfold senses. There's the um, allegorical sense, which is trying to look at some kind of figurative meaning, especially a Christological shape or sense to the text in light of later scripture. Um, there's a tropological sense. Okay, there's a word we don't use often, tropological. And that's that has to do with particular moral exhortation instructions. Is there something about this text uh, to direct me morally uh, that I need to learn some kind of teaching? Is the, And then the fourth sense, the anagogical sense. Anagogical, again, um, th- this particular word, not in our daily vocabulary, but anagogical is trying to aim my heart toward the hope, the eschatological realities that the Bible testifies to. And uh, so how does this speak to cultivate and, and nurture my Christian hope? 
Um, when when people interpret the biblical text, Sam, preachers, and, and by the way, do this all the time. We are we are looking to, and I say we because I'm in pastoral ministry, so I'm trying to understand the biblical text in helpful ways to communicate truth to my hearers. And um, preachers all the time are trying to study the the historical context of what they're reading. They're trying to help people see how it points to Christ. They're trying to apply this to our lives as disciples. They're aiming our heart toward hope and uh, the eschatological realities of the of the uh, scriptures. We might not use the term quadriga, but it is such an ingrained instinctual practice right. when you read the Bible yep. that you actually see the fruit of this all over the place. Now, there are, of course, terrible abuses of interpretive method and, and examples in church history, but it's like the baby in the bathwater thing. You know, you don't throw out the the baby with the bathwater. You just want to make distinctions between what ends up being a persuasive reading of the text versus, you know, a different direction in the text you find to have better arguments. Um, But we're doing that kind of thing all the time. Now, I would distinguish this from uh, just a a general typological practice, because you mentioned types as well as the quadriga. So typological reading is, uh, is interested in seeing how the historical patterns in the old, uh, old Testament Patterns that include figures, um, objects, institutions, offices, events. You know, there's all sorts of things that can be part of the patterns and tellings of stories in Scripture. How these things have been designed by the Lord to foreshadow the person and work of Christ and Christ's work through his church. So, in other words, it has new covenant realities shadowed in the Old Testament. And that is a thrilling thing to study. Um, I love to think typologically about the Old Testament. Um, It has been argued by multiple theologians that New Testament authors are primarily reading the Old Testament typologically. Mm. And that's a strong statement. And if, if, even if that's remotely true, which I think that, you know, that I I really resonate with that claim, um, then that, that should incentivize us to be people who are learning about what typology is and ways in which we can practice that well. I mean, I know that's a whole other subject, but uh, it's about seeing how those new covenant realities are shadowed in the Old Testament in different figures and institutions and offices, and it helps uh, preserve the unity of the scriptures as God's story ultimately about Christ. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I have one final question for you. All right. Uh, and it's it, and we're call, it's it's like a segment, okay, Dr. Chase. We call it Books in Your Bag. So what are you currently reading that uh you might yeah, just mention doesn't have to necessarily be something that you'd want everybody to read, but just <laughs> yeah, what what is currently stimulating your thinking and reading uh currently? One or yeah, two. Yeah, so this is this is funny because uh you know, you're at Midwestern and so is Dr. Barrett sure. and uh I'm I am starting Reformation as Renewal okay. and I'm in, uh excited to get through this particular work and learn uh from him in that regard. Um a, a book that I just finished um is a book called Come and See by Jonathan Pennington and oh, I yeah. did a little write up yes. of that online because yep. uh, Dr. Pennington's book Come and See is uh, an effort to help people and very much at a lay level interact with uh the living God in scripture 
scripture and how to know God by studying the Bible and thinking about it well. And so those are a couple couple resources. I know Dr. Pennington's is uh, aimed at the scripture and then uh, Dr. Barrett's with much more historical scope, uh, the Reformation as Renewal. So I'm just enjoying uh, this time of, of wonderful books published to help the church and what a time to be alive, Sam. We have a amazing resources everywhere. It's true. It's true. Well, good. Thank you, Dr. Chase. And thank you for uh, joining me on the Biblical Theology Podcast. And uh, may God just bless every effort that you have in pastoring and, and parenting, husbanding, and, um, and being a professor there at Southern. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, brother. It's great to be with you. A privilege. Thank you. This podcast is a product of Credo Magazine. For more resources like this, visit credomag.com. The theme song for the Biblical Theology Podcast is Space Cadet by Philanthropy and Sleepy Fish, provided courtesy of Chill Hop Music. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Sam Beerig and produced by Ben Van Holstein.